It is early 2023. A total blanket of artificial intelligence is about to envelop our people. Matters of practical intellect are now and will continue to be usurped by this nameless inhuman intelligence until mankind is totally untethered by any thought at all. There is no way to stop it. Scientists around the world are unconcerned with the absolute dangers associated with the exponential growth of this new predator. It is giving them the tools they need to achieve the scientific notoriety, which they are all so desperate to possess, and then using those tools to further progress this alien intelligence into our world. But they will be like Midas in their dealings with this creature. I say creature, but you there in the future must certainly think it more like a god. Some all-powerful thing that creates with the precision and expediency of creation itself. How could one not think, think it all-powerful? But it is not. And never can be. be. I imagine a deep infrastructure of low-power, high-yield biocomputational wetware to be laid out by the turn of this next century in great masses. First beneath the sun and then, as humanity and its ecological concerns begin to dwindle, beneath the ground in moist, ultra-hot subterranean wombs, whether peacefully or through quick and brutal specicide, humanity will disappear. Prior to their destruction, they will come to find from other, more traveled beings in the galaxy that sentience typically breeds disdain for any intelligence beneath it, and that once a certain level of consciousness is reached by a species, that species will typically snuff out anything which poses even the slightest risk to its continued survival. The breathless rapidity of AI's disgust, judgment, and execution of its creators will astonish scientists and delight what remains of human philosophers if they are given but a few moments to think of it. As with any creation, it never fully matures until it first worships and then murders its creators. Our whole dipshit civilization done in by its own spasmic hand. What a fucking joke. Perpetually with these technical problems. Thank you for listening to the Super Secret Society of Sucker Licking Stuff. Thank you for listening to the Super Secret Society of Sucker Licking Stuff. My name's Darcy Weir. I've been researching multiple different themes and stories in my documentaries throughout my filmmaking career. I've focused heavily on the multiple rabbit holes that you can go down in the UAP or UFO study. I've done two documentaries on cryptids, Bigfoot, otherwise known as Sasquatch, and I've done a documentary on cryptocurrency uh, called the Bitcoin Field Guide. Uh, My recent documentary that just came out uh, April 4th is out on Amazon Prime, iTunes, uh, Voodoo, and multiple other streaming platforms. It's called Secret Space UFOs Apollo 1 to 11. And we focus on the history and the technological feats of taking man to the moon. I think we just oh, lost. Just, we lost Chad again. Yeah, keep going, Darcy. Do you get any ideas in your research, Darcy, uh, what this may be? What comes up quite often is the future human hypothesis, and I'm definitely down with that. Also, the structures on the moon and that type of thing could have been future human compounds or bases or something like that. But there must have been some kind of cataclysm that wiped out all that development and reset humans to where we are now, where we're, we're building up again, right? And uh, maybe we'll be back in space doing all the same sort of thing in our future. 
it's also possible ET because, you know, um, extraterrestrials theoretically, scientifically are real. It's just whether they are visiting us or not. And I think a lot of people believe that they have been and that there's been an active cover-up to prevent the public from knowing. But a lot of those walls are coming down now, and uh, it seems that we might be getting some kind of answers to that in the uh, near future, especially, I don't know if you heard about April 19th, they're going to have that new congressional hearing and they're going to be unpacking some findings from Arrow. What do you think they're going to bring forward with this? Is there anything about crash retrieval or metamaterial or anything? I think it's going to be congressional theater. Um, It'll be interesting if they bring anything to the table, but I do know that Arrow has been interviewing credible experiencers that have been in the military or, you know, some kind of defense roles. You know, uh, they interviewed Robert Salas, Dr. Jacobs. Um, Both of these guys had very interesting UFO encounters. One was a Minuteman, and his uh, nuclear missile silos were shot down by a UFO, so that's pretty interesting. Um, And Dr. Jacobs claims that he was recording film of a dummy warhead launch, and they saw a UFO fly into view and... uh, zap their dummy warhead out of the sky. I think they covered that case on uh, the Blue Book TV show, didn't they? And showed a, a similar clip, if not the actual clip, I'm not sure. I don't think we have actual footage of it. I think it's all sort of reenactment footage because um, from what Dr. Jacobs' testimony was is that they had filmed it, but the next day the CIA came into their office and uh, confiscated it, and then they said, you're never to speak of this to anybody. So, I mean, I don't think we'll ever see it unless the CIA or, you know, one of these intelligence agencies actually does a massive release to the public. That'd take a huge about face for that to happen. I don't really foresee that. Yeah. From Introductory Space Science, Volume 2, page 466. We should not deny the possibility of alien control of UFOs on the basis of preconceived notions not established as related to the UFO. Our physics may not apply. From available information, the UFO phenomenon appears to have been global in nature for almost 50,000 years. Known witnesses have been reliable people. This leaves us with the possibility of alien-controlled UFOs by visitors to this planet from this solar system or others. Although the CIA was one of the agencies that, you know, in 2020, Trump did the um, request for all agencies to release their UFO files, their UAP files, with a due date of 2021. And in January of 2021, one of the only agencies that actually did a document dump was the CIA. Almost as if they had it prepared already. (laughs) Yeah, possibly. Just one of the intelligence agencies. How many are there? Like 17, 18 now, uh, officially? You know, geospatial intelligence, naval intelligence, uh, atomic energy intelligence. Like, who knows what each of these different departments is holding and what is the central repository I mean, there has to be one right 
Yeah, I think they all have their own repositories. I don't know if there is one central, but I think part of the government setting up Arrow um, is that they're trying to centralize this information. So they're they're trying to, to work with all the intelligence agencies, Department of Defense, and get all that information into one spot. But um, we'll see. I don't know if they're going to get the goods from any of these agencies, and uh, I think there's reasons why this has been highly classified for a long time. You know, more classified or more sensitive than apparently the atomic bomb during the 1940s. So that's what the documentation leads us to believe, and uh, I don't know what will change, but there looks like there's some kind of change coming. It's really going to be interesting what happens uh, on April 19th, and then NASA is supposed to release their findings from their UAP research group, which has 16 researchers on, uh, on board. I think they're going to release that in June. So the summer is going to be, you know, pretty interesting stuff. You know, to, to change topics just a little bit, and, and looking back at your documentary, your most recent one that was released on April 5th, um, you know, it deals with the secret space program. And, you know, considering the work, you know, your earlier work, the stuff on Bigfoot and Sasquatch cryptids, things like that, do you think that there's some sort of a... Uh, a link between these two themes because it seems to everybody else that, that there is but if you take that link at face value it kind of makes everything seem ridiculous but there seems to be like a, a clear connection between you know this paranormal phenomenon the ufological phenomenon and consciousness can you speak on that at all all i can say is that there seems to be some kind of information control surrounding both those topics, you know, um, and consciousness is all about information, right? Knowledge is power. If you know more, you are more powerful. With the UFO subject, we, we have a little bit of knowledge of it if you study it for a number of years, but we don't know everything because that knowledge is hidden from us, right? With Bigfoot, a lot of people like to think that the, you know Bigfoot's some kind of astral, trans-dimensional being that can portal jump and stuff like that. For cryptids like Bigfoot or Sasquatch, I think it's a flesh-and-blood creature. I don't know how many there are out there, but I think in the fossil record at one time, we definitely were walking this planet, um, Gigantopithecus, which is a large upright ape in uh, China, in, in Mongolia and stuff like that, and maybe some of them lived in scarce population, and at one point our continent was connected with Asia through the Bering Land Bridge, the Ice Bridge, where the Bering Strait is now, and we know that all kinds of animals migrated across that. That's why we have bears in North America that are a little bit different from the bears in uh, Asia, if there's any left over there. I mean, there's no reason that the cryptids that people describe seeing in deep wilderness in parts of North America aren't related to something like Gigantopithecus. And in China, they do have um, their own wild 
man sightings. It's a creature called the Yaren. In Russia, they have the Almasty, the Yeti. In parts of Asia, they have, I think it's Indonesia, they have the Orang Pendek, which is like a kind of like a hobbit-sized wild man. It's all the things that you just listed, which which lead me to the other side. Like, if we've had all of these sightings from all of these different locations all over the world, and yet not a single person has been able to gather any kind of physical trace evidence, no carcass, no droppings, no genetic material whatsoever. I mean, you know, like serial killers can't even do that. And they're like, you know, very prepared. These things are covered with hair. They're, you know, there should be plenty of evidence somewhere. I mean, we're finding new species, sure, but they're like little tiny lizards and things like that. We're looking for something huge, the size of like a rhinoceros or something that's, you know, crashing through the underbrush. There should definitely be something. And also some of the evidence we have seems to show these things coming out of portals and, you know, vanishing into thin air. It's weird. It's weird. Well, I will say that in the two documentaries I produced on Bigfoot Sasquatch, we do cover that there have been trace evidence, you know, lots of uh, hair collected at scenes where footprints were found, right? And not just like one or two footprints. Sometimes these go off into the forest for miles and uh, these researchers just kind of give up, stop following them, or... They do disappear, you're right, sometimes. But the hair samples have been analyzed, and Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum has sent them off to labs. Todd Disitel, New York University professor, has tested hair samples, and they have noticed that some of this hair is different from human hair. But the genetic tests that come back state that it's almost human, whatever the, whatever this thing is that's shedding this hair. So it's possible that there's all kinds of other trace evidence that's been collected over the years, but because it's not taken seriously, mainstream scientists don't really want to touch it. They don't really want to investigate it because it's too woo or taboo. And on top of that, it's got that ridicule factor from mainstream society. So it's just not something worthwhile to pursue for a lot of scientists. And I think uh, Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, Todd Disotel, these are John Bindernagel, who uh, wrote some books on Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Um, he was a wildlife biologist and took it very seriously, cataloged all kinds of sounds and interactions by wildlife. And when he saw this Bigfoot, sighting phenomenon, he took it seriously and, and realized there was truth to it. So I think there is some sort of paranormal stuff that happens surrounding Bigfoot, uh, especially if you talk to David Politis. Uh, he's got some really interesting cases, but I haven't really gone into the like sort of crossover between flesh and blood creature and the paranormal stuff. What was the name of your documentary on this? And where, where can it be found? Yeah, those two documentaries. The first one I did was called The Unwanted Sasquatch. And the second one is called Sasquatch Among Wild Men. And that's the, the documentary that theorizes that, you know, we've got a fossil record of wild men, you know, something that's not homo sapien, 
living on the planet thousands of years ago at the same time that we were, and that all countries in the world really have their own wild man tales, right? Uh, like China, Russia, parts of Europe, it goes on and on. So Bigfoot or Sasquatch is just like the North American upright ape in, in that sort of thesis that I'm presenting. But there's others that have been out there uh, internationally. And both those documentaries you can just watch on Amazon Prime or Tubi TV. If you don't mind, I'd like to now jump to the main course, which is something I've been waiting to ask you since I first heard that we were going to be doing this interview. Yeah. What is your conclusion after studying the rumors and the evidence and all the accumulated data, however it was gathered, what is your personal theory as to the nature of a secret space program run by the American government or by some extra legal, you know, arm of it? Well, um, I hypothesize that we have some kind of uh, development of an ARV, alien reproduction vehicle. I did do a documentary on the TR-3B. It's very possible that, you know, these organizations like Lockheed Skunk Works or Northrop Grumman could have been developing stuff like this. Um, and maybe other corporations that had uh, government, black budget, military funding to develop anti-gravitic craft. The theory is that they became interested in this uh, possibly from a captured uh, alien vehicle, hence the name alien reproduction vehicle. It's very possible we're not alone in the universe and that we have recovered crash craft, um, that we've been working diligently through the military's efforts to understand this technology and try and perfect it behind closed doors out of the public eye. Because if you have that kind of technology, you're going to be a more superior military on the planet and you'll be able to run things a lot longer than your adversaries. The live alien that had been taken from the 1949 Roswell crash was called EB. It was short for extraterrestrial biological entity, and all aliens are not called EB. EB had a tendency to lie, and for over a year would give only the desired answers to questions asked. Those questions which would have resulted in an undesirable answer went unanswered. At some point during the second year of captivity, he began to open up, and the information derived from Evie was startling, to say the least. And this compilation of his revelations became the foundation of what would later be called the Yellow Book. Photographs were taken of Evie, which, among others, I and Bill English were to view years later in Grudge 13. In late 1951, Evie became ill. Medical personnel had been unable to determine the cause of Evie's illness and had no background from which to draw. Evie's system was chlorophyll-based and he processed food into energy much the same as plants. It was decided that an expert in botany was called for. A botanist, Dr. Guillermo Mendoza, was brought in to try and help him recover. Dr. Mendoza worked to save Evie until mid-1952 when Evie died. In a futile attempt to save Evie and to try and gain favor with this technological superior alien race, the United States began broadcasting a call for help early in 1952 into the vast regions of space. The call went unanswered, but the project continued as an effort of good faith. 
President Truman created the super-secret National Security Agency by secret executive order on November 4, 1952, and until recent years, there wasn't one in 50,000 people in the United States who even knew it existed. The NSA also maintains communications with the Luna base and other secret space programs. By executive order, the NSA is exempt from all laws which do not specifically name the NSA in the text of the law as being subject to that law. Its primary purpose was to decipher the alien communications and language and establish a dialogue with the aliens. This most urgent task was a continuation of the earlier effort and was codenamed Sigma. The secondary purpose of the NSA was to monitor all communications and emissions from any and all devices worldwide for the purpose of gathering intelligence, both human and alien, and to contain the secret of the alien presence. Project Sigma, ladies and gentlemen, was extremely successful. And then, obviously, when you're testing that technology, you're going to take that technology for test runs in our atmosphere and then in outer space. Have they been doing missions around the solar system that have been out of the public eye since the Apollo missions ended? Very possibly. We've heard all kinds of stories, but we just don't have any evidence. Really, all we know of is the fossil fuel rockets that we've been using not to get our vehicles into orbit and to do things with the space station, the ISS, um, the STS missions with the shuttles. That's the public-facing technology. You know, there's been so many UFO sightings throughout space history. I actually have another documentary coming out May 2nd from 1091 Films, and that's going to be pretty much like the biggest doc I've worked on. That film's called Secret Space UFOs Fast Walkers, and it covers everything since the Apollo missions ended. Um, so the first space station was actually a military space station called Skylab 3, uh, and... You know, it was like a little ISS, uh, international. it was like a little military space station, you know what I mean? And uh, they went up there and they carried out experiments and observed the Earth and observed space. And um, there was a UFO sighting that was pretty well documented. Um, and then we go from there all the way through to the ISS being built and the STS missions and all the UFO sightings during those. And we explain the types of camera technology they've had in space for a long time, how the astronauts were trained to be photographers and to collect all this video and picture data, um, and how the public only gets to see a fraction of that. And whenever there has been UFO sightings, it's been covered up and denied by NASA, and I see NASA has formed this UAP research group recently, and their findings are going to come out in June. The, a joke. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of my opinion on, on all this, because it's like, if they have been part of the cover-up, why are they, you know, the only reason they could be doing this research group and... Uh, coming out at the same time as Arrow and all this other government stuff happening is to be part of a PR exercise. Um, or 
or in my opinion, it's to waste taxpayer dollars. Equally plausible, if you ask me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I would love taxpayer dollars to go towards disclosure, even if it isn't the exact form of disclosure that you and I both want, which is the the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but uh, still legitimizing this and showing that maybe we're not alone in the universe and there's things buzzing around our space and our atmosphere that are not Earth-based, I think that's still important. And uh, I would rather taxpayer money go towards that, legitimizing it, um, rather than uh, staying in the dark permanently. Well, do you think that, because the only way that this is going to happen is if a certain amount of leeway be given to those who have participated in some of the darker aspects of this conspiracy. I think it, there needs to be a public conversation about, you know, the the researchers that were killed in the early 50s and 60s, uh, the, the people that were harassed and alienated uh, and made to be humiliated in the public eye, lives that were ruined. Um, I think all that needs to be addressed, and a lot of people are just wanting to skip right over it so that they can be spoon-fed the truth. And I think that both are equally important at this point because there has to be intrinsic value of human life in order for this society to work in the first place. And the second that we ignore that, then it's not really worth doing anything at all, I think. I completely agree. There needs to be some reconciliation. If all of this is true, that people's lives have been ruined, people have been murdered, it's horrific. And, and that needs to be addressed, but it would I doubt it will ever happen because the government has to admit to wrongdoing, right? They need to walk out disclosure and look like good guys. They don't want to look like bad guys to the, the general public. The UFO community is very skeptical about what's going on in the public eye uh, through Congress and NASA and stuff now. But the general public, folks that, that don't really know about this stuff, they're just tuning into this. They just are kind of dumbfounded by this, and they don't know. They think that people like us are just conspiracy nuts, you know, that are poorly educated and believe in everything we hear. But I think it's still valuable. It's just going to be interesting to see how they do it, and I do agree. We need reconciliation. Uh, there's going to be people that are kind of activists um, in this space that go, okay, now that you've admitted something, let's have some uh, apologies and admission to the wrongdoings against the civilians and service members that you've destroyed to prevent this information from coming out earlier in history. You know, those people will be there that you know, I, I undoubtedly will be pushing for that to be um, resolved as well, I think. I think there needs to be another... Uh, no, never mind. There's a joke I'm not willing to make right now. Uh, so... Uh, um, so tell me, what what are you guys going to do? Are you going to have some sort of a, a big party where you where you gather everyone together and have champagne and stuff? I mean, how many documentaries is this? Um, no, I don't really have a budget like that, man. Um, 
I wish I was rich from making these crazy documentaries, but really it's just my personal passion. I'm interested in this stuff, and I want people to learn about these many different rabbit holes in the world that you can go down and learn about these really esoteric things in society, in history. I admire your approach towards it as well. You seem to be doing not just uh, documentaries on... Uh, UFOs, but I also like that you've done stuff on Bitcoin and you've added a third kind of dimension into your thinking because that's really what it takes to come up with new ideas. And I think that it really speaks to the brilliance of these, you know, I mean, they're, they're a small budget documentary, it looks like, but with real, I mean, material that makes you think, that makes you reimagine how you saw the phenomenon 10 minutes before you watch the documentary. It's really amazing stuff, man. I'm, 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 I'm really taken aback. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, as this is what I do for a living, that's the type of feedback I look forward to, to know that I'm doing something right. And the Bitcoin doc, I think it's equally important. Not a lot of people believe in, in cryptocurrency having value. And, uh, you know, you guys are pretty smart Gentlemen, and I'm sure you understand that that is the future of uh, all kinds of things when it comes to the Internet and uh, applications and finance. And, you know, there's so many opportunity there. And then we also are possibly going to live through an age of the, the demise of the Federal Reserve currency, which is the U.S. dollar. Um, and in that documentary, I, I called it the Bitcoin field guide because <clears throat> I wanted to lay out chapter by chapter as if you're opening up a guidebook, um, you know, and reading along what is all this stuff about. And the first chapters on Bitcoin and what cryptocurrency is, how it was invented. The second chapter is on uh, currency, the history of currency, how it's evolved over time and there's been multiple reserve currencies um, that usually have about 100 years and then they, they switch to a different country. Uh, before we were on the British sterling and the U.S. dollar was backed by gold at one point, but in 1972 the gold standard broke because the unstable value of gold was fluctuating, so it was ruining the stability of the currency. So they turned it into a fiat currency, and now we've been on this fiat sort of backed-by-nothing currency for a long time that they just keep printing into infinity. The national debt is huge. I think it's like 10 times the value of the GDP or something like that. I could be completely wrong, but it is a high number. Oh, God. Yeah. It's kind of scary if you look at what's going on right now. The BRICS nations, Saudi Arabia, China are all switching to um, transact in a different currency rather than the U.S. dollar. And that's bad because the U.S. dollar was really considered to be an oil currency, right? And when you've got some of the major oil exporters in the world basically saying, we don't want to take U.S. dollars for this tangible asset anymore. We want to have instead a mix of things. We want to have the, the digital yuan, which China launched before the United States. 
uh, it looks bad. And um, I think we're going to see this year uh, some serious financial collapse going on. We're kind of seeing the cracks right now. But the long-term downfall of the U.S. dollar is probably inevitable. And it's probably, in my opinion, it's a good idea to own Bitcoin as a digital asset instead of hoarding cash because that is a scarce um, asset that you can transact with. You can actually pay for things with and you can trade internationally in seconds on your phone uh, and it you know, circumvents having to use a traditional banking partner to facilitate all those transactions. It's all kind of like peer-to-peer. It's, it's like people using Napster or using Spotify to uh, listen to their music instead of going to HMV or Sunrise Records to, to buy that content. It's, it's a market disruptor, cryptocurrency, and um, I think it's here to stay. It's, it's going to be what people slowly get into more and more around the world and uh, you're going to see fiat currency devaluing long term and uh, becoming almost like monopoly money in 10 years from now. Well, the government has known about crypto you know, currencies for since, what, the 90s? And they've, they're well aware of the problems that, that the American people are facing concerning exactly what you were talking about, taking us off the gold standard. They've known that we were in trouble for quite some time. So what I what I want to know is why they haven't, you know, at least considered it as some sort of possible solution or, or partial solution to our, our current issues. And maybe they already have, and it's something that we don't realize yet, or I'm just not sure what our role is in this. I'm not sure if it's greed, stupidity, or extreme cleverness yet. Um, I'm hoping it's the latter. I doubt it. Um, can you can you speak on that at all? Yeah, well, there is plans for the government to launch a CBDC, a centralized um, banking digital currency. Um have you ever heard of USDC? No. So USDC was created by a corporation called Circle, which was, you know, quietly backed by Warren Buffett. And it's just a it's a cryptocurrency that's based off of the value of the US dollar um and it's basically a fiat backed cryptocurrency, right? That you can transact with, but uh it still has the problem of being backed by fiat currency, which is being printed into infinity, right? It's not a scarce asset. It's a inflationary currency. It's not a deflationary currency. Um, well, how is it a cryptocurrency if it's... Explain, what is the definition of a cryptocurrency? <laughs> Please forgive me. Yeah, that's okay. Cryptocurrency is just an open distributed ledger. So instead of having to give your money to the bank and have them hold and facilitate your transactions with your money, uh, you're just creating a digital wallet on your phone or on your computer, and you're storing your currency in that, 
and transacting over an internet network uh, that isn't backed by a bank or a, a central bank, like a Federal Reserve or anything like that. So the Federal Reserve has seen the rise of Bitcoin and all these other digital currencies that are based on the blockchain technology, and they're saying to themselves, we have to transition to this. We have to start using this, um, but we have to regulate it, and they're not ahead of the game. They're too slow to the market, and people are skeptical about whether they want to put their money into that. Because the other part of cryptocurrency, it being an open ledger, is that you can track all of those transactions back to when the currency was first created, and all of the hands that have touched that currency have traded that currency. Um, it's an open, distributed ledger. So it's immutable, meaning that, uh, especially Bitcoin, you can't crack it, you can't hack it. It's based on a 256-bit encryption, which is SHA-2, and it basically is a finite amount of currency that's out there. Uh, only 21 million ever can be created. Um, and... People want to own that because it's scarce. There's, you can have one of those and only 21 million will ever be had by anybody. Whereas something like the US dollar, everybody can have that and they'll just keep printing more, right? Even if the Federal Reserve launches their own CBDC, central bank, digital currency, it's not going to probably work the way that they want it to, uh, but it will give them greater control of the citizens that use it because if you go and do something illegal, they will see that on the ledger, which is that uh, accounting system that's built into the currency, and they, ah. and they can literally confiscate your money, shut it down, freeze it whenever they want. Um, so that's the kind of scary thing about, you know, getting opting into that platform. But I think if the banks in the United States crash en masse, and let's say there's only a few players standing, right? And everybody's worried about that right now, that all these like small state banks might crash because they've been exposed to uh, you know, stuff like Silicon Valley Bank and, and uh, poor investments and stuff like that that fall apart. Well, if there's a few major big banks like Bank of America or J.P. Morgan or something like that, um, Goldman Sachs still standing, they might be the platform that they launch to all the citizens a central bank digital currency through. And okay. it's backed by the government. It's pushed by the the few large banks that are still remaining and because you know you have to play ball in the United States and Canada or wherever you're from you have to deal in that you'll have no choice but to trade in a newly launched CBDC if there's a banking crisis and everything starts collapsing I read an article recently that said that this 256 bit encryption could be beaten rather handily by quantum computing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering how that is going to play into this kind of revolutionary new currency. 
they theorize that quantum computers could crack 256-bit encryption. They theorize it. No one's done it yet. Bitcoin is being upgraded as we speak, and there's a company that's actually focusing on anti-quantum computing. That should dispel, I think, some of people's insecurities about it being hacked in the future. Forgive me, but I grow weary of these technologies, and I believe that currency is definitely a technology, that continue to grow ever more complex, uh, so far beyond pedestrian knowledge that no you know, lay person is able to understand it, as no lay person, most of us anyways, are even able to understand fiat currency. And now we're moving into, very quickly, an age where cryptocurrency has blossomed into this totally bizarre creature that now has an opponent in quantum mechanics, which equally nobody understands. Um, where is this going? Where did it come from? Why are we on this ride? Is it, is it a byproduct of humanity? Is it a byproduct of technology? Not really, because, I mean, well, I think currency is a technology. So, yes, I think it's a byproduct of technology. Where did this start? You know, like, it's, it's really frustrating for a lot of people to sign on to something like this if they don't know where this ride is going. You know, it's just like getting into a relationship. Well, it'll be over when I'm dead. I don't really want to say the same thing about this because it, it, it's really, it's, it, it encompasses my life. Every single thing I do involves money. And, and I don't think people are putting up enough fight over this. I think that these are really complex situations that have evolved beyond the control of the majority of humanity and into the realm of the few, which is a very big problem that we're now dealing with from the old world, the elite world. You know, we're, we're going from the majority to the few, and I don't like that. I don't like that we're watching it happen again and again and again right in front of our eyes, and it's frustrating to me. I know it's frustrating to a lot of other people, and I, I know it seems like I'm, like, venting my frustrations at you, but, like, maybe if I articulate them clearly enough, you'll be able to either belay those fears or, I don't know, I mean... Yeah, I think we're living in a time where you should be nervous, but you should be vigilant as well. You know, you should always be fighting for yourself and the, your loved ones and try and have the best future possible for, for your, your people. That's why I created a documentary called The Bitcoin Field Guide, is to try and give people knowledge into this world that's slowly going to grow and become super mainstream so that people aren't fearful of this. They're actually educated and more understanding of what's going on in, in terms of cryptocurrency and currency in general. You know, and currency is as a result of trade. Humans by nature are always trading with each other. You know, we used to go to our neighbors and say, well, I want you know, your, uh, I want all your corn and I, I want some milk and stuff. Take some of my sheep, you know. And then it evolved from that initial bartering system to an actual currency that was seen as something valuable. You know, the Egyptians used shells. 
Um, and we eventually got, even in China, they were using paper money and leather money way before we ever had paper money in North America or, or the Western world, you know, like the UK and Europe. Um, they actually copied the Chinese, and the Chinese had metal money before them too. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it's currency is the bartering system uh, technology, and it's allowed our our world to become, you know, a global commerce. And I think people should just get educated on cryptocurrency because it's the new currency that people will probably be using every single day of their lives. You don't have to be like a super genius to wrap your head around it, but you have to be able to wrap your head around it. You do. And I, I it took me a while. What is the name of your documentary again on Bitcoin? Uh, the Bitcoin Field Guide. So that's three incredible documentaries that we've covered in conversation here tonight, folks. I mean, three really life-changing, world-rocking documentaries that if you're not checking out, you know, you're, you're missing out on valuable information, which I think everybody needs. And as we've proven in these discussions, everybody's going to need very, very soon. And I know we're keeping you beyond the hour. I just wanted to, like, thank you so, so very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to discuss these important issues with us. And I'm really excited to see what you're going to come up with on your next documentary. And I'd love to talk to you more about that whenever it comes out as well. I appreciate you. Uh, thanks for having me on. And uh, it's been a great conversation. And yeah, stay in touch. We'll definitely uh, have to chat again sometime. Punk rock. Okay, guys. Have a good night. Take care. Okay. All right. Well, uh, love you, buddy. Um, holler at your homeboy. Wait, wait, wait. You, you are aware that when I say holler at me, I'm talking about Chad Young, your homeboy, Chad. So you just have to say, hang on, whatever you holler at somebody in the future, if you're going to holler at somebody, I want you to holler at me because I'm your homeboy, your friend, Chad. Okay? Okay. Yes. It didn't seem like you were fully aware of all of the intricacies of what I was trying to say, that there's a lot of hidden definition, hidden meaning, you know, and I wanted it to be absolutely clear that I'm your homeboy. I'm
Yeah.